was I was sort of I was surprised to hear that you um, you were in New York because uh, you've 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 bounced around a lot. It seems like over the past couple decades. Um. Well, not not really. You know, in a way, I've been I was pretty steady in San Francisco um, from like late '97 until 2009. Um, you know, I, I think most of my kind of like bouncing around time ended around that, around 97. Um, yeah, I'm always traveling in bands or doing readings or whatever out in the road in that way, but I was very rooted in San Francisco. I was like, I was like paying around and having a place and stuff like that, you know? Um, and then I moved to New York in 2009. I'll ask you the question that that I get asked a lot because I'm from the Bay Area originally, and people like kind of boggles their mind that you would, you know, that 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 I would want to move to to like a hellhole like New York City after after <laughs> being in beautiful Northern California. What what brought you? Uh-huh. Out here? What brought me to New York? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was a sense of um, wanting. I'd always thought that someday I would want to live in New York because I really like it. And uh, I've been in San Francisco for so long. And San Francisco is a, you know, like geographically a really small place. And um, I really felt like I knew it really well. In fact, the book I was working on that I'm about to finish this winter was uh, literally about, like, uh, you know, partially about uh, cement edging from the sidewalk all over town. So it was like, to the point where I was like writing about the you know the minutia of like every square inch of the sidewalk in San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I was thinking like I needed uh, some new horizons, you know. Um, so like uh, coming to New York, it's like uh, you know it's more limitless in a certain way. It's like I can get lost there. It's very geographically huge. There's so many people. I mean, the world's happening simultaneously. So it was exciting to kind of just like go somewhere and kind of start over a little bit. And then um, additionally, uh, it's hard to move, you know, so I just felt kind of like if I didn't, if I didn't do it now, I don't know if it ever going to happen, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, but you're talking about two places that are, you know, at least like um, economically pretty, pretty, pretty tough to live in. Right. I guess so. I, I don't know. It hasn't really hasn't really been that hard for me over the years. And I'm, you know, scam, I guess I'm a pretty resourceful guy in some ways, but um, I don't know. It's never, I, you know, in addition to being expensive, you know, New York and San Francisco are both a place, places where there's lots of opportunity, you know, so I feel like it's a kind of like, life I need, like, without, like, a steady job where I'm trying to, like, hustle up different kind of gigs and work on my own writing and stuff like that. Like, both of those places are pretty um, conducive to that kind of lifestyle. There's, like, other people that are, you know, there's all kinds of other folks that live like I do in those places. You know, when you're, when you're in the cheap towns, like, I don't know, like, like that towns, you know, like Gainesville, Florida, or Bloomington, Indiana, or something. I mean, a lot of those places, like, um, there's only you know, a couple jobs, and you know, people have trouble kind of getting by in some of those places anyway, too. You know? You you were doing like 
you know at least in some of the early scam stuff there's there's you know talk about like squatting and things like that is that i mean is that still part of your life Squatting is not a part of my life so much anymore. Um, I was squatting in San Francisco though at certain times, um, but I, uh, you know, I got to a point in, in like the last time I was squatting, uh, I had a couple, had a really successful year of squatting in San Francisco. That was really amazing, and, uh, and then I went out of town for a little bit, and I came back, and the place I'd been living in had been. Um, demolished by uh, a bulldozer, <laughs> and I, I started looking for new squats, and uh, I just, you know, it's like you, sometimes you find the right spot, sometimes you don't, and I spent like six months getting kicked out of all kinds of different spots, and uh, my stuff got stolen out of different places, and um, I just kind of wasn't like able to do anything else other than look for housing, you know? Yeah. And uh, at the same time... I didn't feel like I knew anybody else. It was like, it, like, it was very lonely. Like it wasn't like, a, I wasn't part of a movement or anything. Like, um, there wasn't like other folks that had my back that were living that way with me. And, um, so there it was a very like kind of isolating feeling at that point. You know, like earlier on, like in the, in the scams you mentioned, like the writing about squatting is like me and my friends are squatting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just kind of was like not feeling, you know, and the, the financial uh, conditions are so intense and that stuff, like kind of like the scariest thing that can happen to people is like this idea that you're going to end up homeless, you know. Um, it's like really like a capitalism's great, um, you know, incentive right now for people in places like New York and SF. And so no one really wanted to go there and live that vulnerably. Uh, with me, and it just kind of was like not really. It's kind of felt like more work than really getting a cheap place. Um, soon after, I, I, you know, I decided in order to do other stuff in my life, I was gonna have to move indoors, and then I, um, I ended up like renting this like office space downtown and like living there illegally for like seven years, and it was like three hundred bucks a month, you know, like <laughs> so. Yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, like a like a sort of like budgeted version of a squat. <laughs> it's it's like it, you know, it seems like what what ends up happening to to a lot of people. You know, there's just kind of like, I you know, I I, I guess what you know what makes people less uh, sort of moves them away from their kind of like punk rock roots is this like desire to be comfortable almost. You know, like. To, uh. You know what I mean? Uh, just to sort well, of... Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. But, like, I mean, I would say... I would... Take uh, issue with that slightly, because I would just say that, like, I feel fairly close to my punk rock roots mm-hmm. in uh, a lot of ways. I feel like my punk rock roots are pretty extreme. So. <laughs> what do you mean? But, you know, I mean, I feel like the early scam lifestyle is like a pretty, it's like, a, like when I was doing that when I was 18, I didn't know any other 18 year olds that were like, wanted to live like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not like, you know, like we were all squatters and then one day we all looked up and we were pushing a stroller down Bedford, you know? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. It was kind of like, you know, even then it was a pretty out there kind of way to go. 
And, um, I don't know. You know, not to, I mean, it's, it's, it, for me, though, it wasn't so much about comfort. Though I hear what you're saying, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much about comfort because, like, living illegally in the office was, like, not really the most comfortable way. But it was more just about not wanting to, just, you know, just being able to, like, have the peace of mind just to, so I could come home and have a place to write. Sure. Just, like, be able to concentrating on other stuff you know yeah to not to not have like worrying about your day-to-day be the at the at the yeah. forefront of everything totally it was just it was just too much effort <laughs> um but you must have like you know if you were you know when you started the only person you knew or one of the only people you knew with that that mindset i mean if if anything writing the zine must have um kind of you know introduced you to more people of, of you know of similar thinking yeah, for sure, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, you know one of the great things about doing uh, um, any kind of zine or newspaper. You know, it's like I was talking about this uh, a lot lately. In, I don't know, there's a bunch of gigs lately where I had to. I was speaking at the Berkeley Museum, and they were asking me about. You know, I was supposed to be talking about like uh, kind of like my life in publishing or something. You know. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, the thing I wanted to get across is that, like, you know, when you make a newspaper or a magazine or something, it's like you you can um, present this sort of, like, universe, you know, uh, that's idealized in a certain way, and then you put it out and you find the other people in the world that, you know, that are into what you're into, you know, so it's kind of this really perfect way to, like, sort of actualize a community that may or may not exist for real in the beginning, you know, so, like, it, you know, it might have been silly to be tagging uh, scam punks on things as if there was, like, a bunch of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, like, but then, you know, at that time, then, like, you know, there were all these other, you know, zines coming out of different corners of the country where people were actually, like, living in similar ways, and we all kind of found each other through through that world yeah so it's pretty cool well that's you know that that's something and i feel like it's it's important to kind of contextualize for 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 younger kids for kids who grew up with the internet is how you know how how that came about like how how you found out about all of these things you know when you're living down in uh you're living down in florida and you know i i I read an interview with you where you were talking about sort of the the genesis of of the zine and you know you mentioned that you're trying to bring like blats over and you know, I'm wondering, wondering how how that network kind of formed in those in those dark days before the internet. Uh, can I ask you a question real fast? Um, yep. Are, uh, how old are you? I'm just curious. I'm 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 30. So, <laughs> I, okay. I, yeah. Not, not not super young or anything. Yeah, no. I wanted to know where you're at. I um, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if it's any different in a way. I you know because. Uh, I mean, it is different. Sometimes, you know, people really romanticize that time a lot. They're like, yeah, you had to work really hard with monkey kids today, looking around on the internet, blah, blah, blah. But, like, but just because you can find something on the internet doesn't mean you can find it, like, where you need it, which is, like, uh, if you're, like, living in a little town and you really need to see, like, a band that's going to change your life, you know, like, you still kind of have to, like, figure out how to make that happen, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just like look it up online. So I don't know. You know, I think people still have. I think the people that are, you know, people that are gonna make stuff happen are still having to work for it. You know, probably is my guess. But um, but as far as that time where, um, you know, I mean, the, if if we're telling a story to internet people, it would just be like, well, it was just like the internet, but it was, um, <laughs> yeah, but it was like harder to use, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All the information would be in like one or two places, but it was harder to get to that place. You know? Yeah. Um, so you know, there was all kinds of like attempts to like compile all the information of where all the punks were in the different scenes. But um, you know, I mean, for us in Fort Lauderdale and the Fort Lauderdale Punk House, where the first issue of Scam came out of, I mean, we were just um, we just really reached out really hard and. Um, we like, you know, we'd look at Maximum Rock and Roll, and then there'd be ads for record labels, and we would like call the phone number on the ad and be like, you know, what, which of these bands is going to tour this year? You guys got to come to Florida. Like, we're we're cool. You may not realize it, but we can give you a good show. You know, you haven't come down here, but trust us. And then most of the people would not come, but then we called them so much that they. Got to know us anyway over the phone, <laughs> and decided that we were like cool weird freaks, you know. But they would not come to Florida, <laughs> but they yeah, it's they funny. Would, it's they like would, they would they would send us their records for free or something, you know. But they would not come. <laughs> well, there's a such yeah. and you, you know, and and this was I I picked up. Uh... I think it was issue seven um, at the uh, the the book release you did, and you're t- <laughs> you still seem to kind of be fighting against that, like the, these 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 ideas that people you know come to the table with when they think of Miami. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's true. It's just, it's Miami like a symbol to a lot of a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, it's a you know it's a party town to some people, or it's you know it's where um, dictators flee to. You know, or you know it's it's where. To people who live in Miami, like everybody thinks that they're Scarface, you know, which is really funny. Um, people will fight you there for no reason all the time, you know. It's like if someone cuts you off on the freeway, don't give them the finger, they might like shoot at you, you know. It's, it's real. It's like everyone's ready to fight all the time. And, and I, you know, and I think that they get that attitude from like the, from like TV and movie images of Miami, you know. But, um, yeah, it's it's you know it's a strange place. And uh, on the other hand, you know, like we had a really cool scene down there, and we were really proud of it. There were a lot of cool bands, and um, you know, there was we started a food up on us, and things seemed really great. And I love living there. I will say that um, you know, in recent years, you know, a lot of like newer, uh, way cooler things have happened there than at the time I was living there. So you know, Miami's, you know, it's it's got its perennial issues, but, um, you know, it seems to, it seems to be enjoying, like, a, you know, resurgence in a lot of ways lately. What, what, uh, what, what drove you to the, to the West Coast originally? Um, man, you know, it's weird. It was kind of accidental, because I had a little chip on my shoulder about the West Coast in a certain way, because all the cool people who was, like, moved there and disappeared, and I was really, like, kind of a Miami booster in a way, 
you know, I really believed in the town. And, um, I, and then I, let's see, I was in a band called Chicken Head, and we did our second U.S. tour. And the goal was to, um, our tour was going to end in, like, L.A., and I was going to ride a bike up the coast and hang out in the bay and visit some of the people I knew through the mail and then come back to Florida. And then our L.A. shows all got canceled, and we were just stuck in the bay for a while, and it turned out to be super great. And we got, we played all these other shows that we didn't expect to play, and so, um, you know, we got, like, pretty set up there, and we're, you know, pretty adopted by a lot of friends there that we'd known through the mail, so. And then everybody went home, and then, uh, I just, like, stepped around there, and I needed to finish that zine about Miami, the one that was number two that was so huge, like, 108 pages. I was looking for a place to finish writing it, and people gave me free places to live there, and I just kind of fell in love with San Francisco. Um, at the time, I did not think I had what it took to stay in San Francisco, because I was kind of still a kid, I was, like, 20. And San Francisco seemed too expensive and adult and intimidating, and people didn't want you to live on their couch forever. But I, you know, I went back a couple of years later, and you know, I, I went to Miami, and I went back to SF a couple of years later. I kind of always knew I would give back. It's it's funny that your original misgivings were that people disappeared there, and then you kind of ended up doing the same for a while. I know, right? You know, I was like, well... Gotta admit, it's pretty cool. You know, it's like what I found when I got to Miami was that um, when I got to SS, I found that um, yeah, there's like this thing that people would say in the small towns. You know, it would be like, oh, everything's so easy in California, but um, some things are easier. But I felt like in a lot of ways, it wasn't entirely true. I mean, things were actually kind of dark there. Like, a lot of kids would show up in San Francisco and, like, real quickly, like, get, like, hooked on heroin and die on the streets or shit like that. I mean, it's actually, like, there are a lot of intense kind of big city problems with it. It didn't actually turn out to feel as easy as, like, it looks from the outside, you know? Yeah. But what I did find was that a lot of the things I've been struggling to do in Miami for years... A lot of like sort of like more of like political or art ideas I had um, made a lot more sense in San Francisco, and people were like willing to embrace them pretty quickly. So um, it was almost like I, I mean, later I almost see it like I was like a San Francisco person who didn't know it yet or something. <laughs> Like a, but, um, a closet is in San Francisco, right? Yeah, because you know, like my first, you know, my first couple months there, when I actually finally moved there, like, you know, the the gentrification in the dot com times was starting really hugely in the um, cause of the dot com bubble, real estate bubble at that time, and a lot of eviction was happening in SF and. Mm-hmm. It was almost like showing up too late, you know, like everybody, you know, everybody was like getting kicked out of their spots and punk clothes were closing. And, but, um, you know, in Miami, we'd always done generator shows out in the middle of nowhere. 
illegal punk rock shows, hitting run shows with a generator. And I suggested, well, if we're losing our punk shows, punk spaces, why don't we uh, you know, do shows out on the street, at Mission Street in San Francisco? And, um, you know, I think that we should try that as a kind of a protest and as kind of a publicly visible way to, like, represent our punk community in this time. Like, people around me were, like, without hesitation, were like, okay, let's do it. You know, like whereas in Miami, I didn't think it, you know, like to do something out on a main street like that, maybe people wouldn't have gone along with it. Or, but in SF, people were like really ready to embrace ideas like that. And, and those you know, ideas were like a lot more successful. I just, you know, and when I first moved to, to New York, I mean, certainly like there's a lot of romantic notions for for people who live here now you know about it, what what it used to be and when it was you know like the 70s and you know when it was you know actually but you know before it, it became kind of what it is now and I'm, I'm wondering if like i don't know do, 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 do you feel like it's still got some of that that old feeling to it or is it just is it kind of become like a fully gentrified uh you know, I, I guess a lot of that is sort of localized in, in in Manhattan, but you know, certainly it's it's taken up a good amount of a good amount of Brooklyn too. Mm, yeah, that's a hard it's a hard thing to answer like really succinctly. You know, um, take your question. I you know I would apply it a little to San Francisco first. Um, you know, San Francisco is this place that represents like a certain kind of freedom in the imagination of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. It's a place that people have always gone to to like live out a certain kind of artistic or political vision um, of a certain kind of freedom. And uh, that seemed really under attack with the gentrification in San Francisco in the past couple of years. You know, in the in the book I'm writing, you know, I talk about that and the, like, the way that people will show up there to like, uh, you know, they they want to be part of you know, some cool anti-war movement or they want to be like, they go to city lights as soon as they get there and they're looking for, you know, evidence of, yeah, evidence of Kerouac or something or they're, they're like a queer kid who like left their small town and they go to the Castro and then they're like, oh shit, it's like all these like weird yuppies and it costs a billion dollars to live here, you know, that kind of thing. Like people are looking for something there and they get there and it's not there. And, um, you know, but then what I've seen over time and what I've, you know, experienced in my own life is that, uh, is that by looking for it, they sort of create it. You know, it's like the people, people continue to show up there looking for it and it's not there and then they sort of like make it happen by being a part of that search. So, um, you know, the conditions are really poor for that kind of freedom in San Francisco in a lot of ways right now. Like people don't have the same kind of free time that they used to have. It's really expensive. It's becoming more conservative in many ways, mentally, you know. And yet people still go there and are still sort of bringing it about, right? So in New York, that's, you know, that's happening times a million, you know, because there's so many more people that are still going there. Um, I can only comment <clears throat> You know, it's like, I, I really, like, I, I don't feel like you could make an authoritative statement about what New York is like. There's just too much happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that I did not go there looking for that. 
you know, I, I went there late enough in life that I already knew that um, that sort of romantic uh, Patty Smith, Just Kids world was already like long gone, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went there because it's just like a sensible place to be. It's like you can the train runs all night, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like it's just like a like a, a, a it's just a good place to be. Um, but, uh, is stuff still going on? Well, you know, I mean, I think, like, one thing that's, one thing that I would say is happening in New York that's unfortunate is, uh, a certain kind of, uh, corporatization of, of, like, a mental outlook, you know? I mean, you know, Sarah Shulman, she's a writer who, um, an activist who has a great, Nonfiction book that came out last year called "The Gentrification of the Mind," and it's about the uh, the AIDS era and the gentrification of the Lower East Side. And you know, she talks about the sort of changing of like people's uh, conceptions of like political possibility and what people consider to be, you know, like uh, doable or normal or, or or real or free or other things in the city. So you know, it's like you see. You know, like, uh, the city is, has more chain stores than it needs to. The city has more, um, you know, the art scenes are based more around an MFA program, kind of like graduate model, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, young people are coming to places like Bushwick to be artists, but those neighborhoods are, like, more like kind of real estate prefab arts neighborhoods and less, like, sort of organic community, um, you know, offshoots of like a a bunch of friends that found each other in the middle of nowhere. You know, mm-hmm. um, so you know, and there's a that kind of striving to be part of the art world, or some of those things are much more important than they used to be everywhere. You know, so I I think that that's that's really the problem, and that that's like a you know a problem across the board everywhere is that people are. Uh, Kind of looking for success in these weird ways, you know. Like, whereas, like the people, you know, the people from the '70s or '80s that you might be talking about, who were in New York or SF or wherever, were actual just freaks who, you know, moved to a total wasteland and did their thing, and then now they're like, you know, mega famous. Thirty years later, you mm-hmm. know? some of them, many of them, didn't even live to be famous in their lifetime. You know? So. It's, I mean, it's a, do you think it, you think it's a problem that that people are trying to become famous or or successful um, based on that, based on their art? Uh, no, no, I think no, 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 no. I, I just think that like people trying to. Um, it's not that people are trying to be famous or successful, but it's that people are, um, you know, like following trends or you know. Mm. You know, just kind of. It's not know, organic. Like, yeah, I, I see more of that. I just feel like there's more emphasis on schooling mm-hmm. and kind of having like an art pedigree or something to make it into like get connections into an art world. You know, and less of a kind of a organic do-it-yourself sort of community aspect. Um, you know, than, than there used to be. I, you know. 
for better or worse. I, you know, for me, I think that that seems a little bit worse. Yeah. So, um, yeah. When, when, when I first, um, when I first approached you to, to do the interview and, and, you know, mentioned publishing, you, you kind of balked and it, it, but it sounds like you did a, uh, a talk recently where, where you, where you, where you spoke about, um, about publishing a little bit. And I'm wondering, um, if you kind of view the whole process of getting, you know, getting a book deal and, you know, working through getting an agent and going, going through, you know, like random house or whatever as something, something similar to this idea of this kind of inorganic creation of art, um, you know, going to like Pratt and, you know, moving to Bushwick and going through all of those, all, all of those processes. Uh, uh, no, not necessarily. Um, because you're you're at two different ends of the spectrum there. On the one hand, you're talking about like uh, you know, the way I'm understanding your question. Like you're, you're talking about like an entire approach to how to go about becoming an artist versus how do I put out writing mm-hmm. that already exists? Uh, you know, so like, I, I mean, I, like you can't, you can't just get an agent. Yeah. You can just go to art school, you know? I mean, like, it's a lot easier to just go to art school than it is to just get an agent, you know? Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I, I guess... So I guess... Like you, already, you, you already have to be a writer, sure. have something, and you're trying to figure out how to put it out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really, I would say that's apples and oranges a little bit. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, I, I, I guess I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is I'm you know I'm wondering if if you know because obviously you're you're a, you're a talented writer and you've done um, you, you did the, uh, the the black flag piece and, and the new scam was for for the LA Weekly so you know you've written for some reputable publications and I'm wondering if if that kind of process if you know if going through you know getting getting published by by sort of more more uh, more mainstream publishers was was something you ever considered or something that ever ever really appealed to you oh totally totally uh, you know i'm interested in writing wherever um yeah for sure and I, I think that like um i think that there's uh different advantages to you know any form i mean i, I think that um in the case of that article or the work I did for the San Francisco Guardian that became the basis of the uh, scam magazine before it. Um, you know, in, in those cases, I was trying to speak to one audience in a certain way, and then I had more that I wanted to say. Um, so I made an expanded version of it that I um, had, you know, more of a full editorial control over, you know. And was able to do something more long form, and in the Miami case, probably a lot more experimental, because it weaved in a bunch of different subjects, and then um, put that out myself. You know, I mean, I would recommend. I, I recommend those ideas. I think those are good publishing in a couple different forums. You know, mm-hmm. to get you're going to find totally different audiences, but. Um, you know, if I was to, like, try to make a book out of that black flag thing, it would have to be, like, you know, and when people suggested to me that I should try to do something like that, I was like, well, what would that look like? And it would be, like, you know, it would have to be, 
you know, how did punk rock and uh, skateboarding uh, overcome oppression to change culture as we know it, <laughs> or something? You know, you know what I mean? It it's would like be it would be like whatever like nonfiction subtitle you have to like the whatever's yeah. behind the colon. Yeah, yeah, you know. So it's like which which is not necessarily uh, you know which could be a killer fucking book to write for somebody or something. It's just not wasn't where I wanted. It wasn't what my interest would be in this. You know. In this case, you know, it was enough for me to make this magazine at the time. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, like, uh, yeah, I think, I don't know, it's weird, you know, because, um, yeah, that's a, that's a debate about music that's always been really huge in the underground, right, is, you know, whether a band should be on a major label or not. And... You know, I think that traces back to uh, beyond punk, unfortunately, to the hippies, and the sense of that the hippie music of the protest era was the was youth culture that was owned by the kids, and that rock and roll was like belonged to the kids, and that promoters like Bill Graham shouldn't be making money off of it, or um, major label records shouldn't be making money off of it, and that you know that passed on to punk rock, you know, primarily in San Francisco because they were still dealing with Bill, Bill Graham when Maximum Rock and Roll started. It was like the same people were profiting off of you. They were, now they were trying to profit off of not the Grateful Dead, but off of the Dead Kennedys. You know? mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, that idea that, that we own the culture, you know, is like always been very powerful and I've always agreed with that. And then it's interesting when you switch that over then to writing, you know, it's like, well, I've never felt entirely the same way about it. You know, it's like, it depends, like, I don't know, it's weird. Because it's like if you're touring in a band, you're like sleeping on people's couches and stuff, they're helping you out because it's part of this thing we all own. It's not yours to sell. You know, which is why people have felt so betrayed by you know, bands like Green Day or Jawbreaker, you know, signing major labels. Because like, hey, I helped those guys out, man. I, like, made food for them. They slept on my couch. I don't get any money for them signing to a label, you know. <laughs> what the fuck? So I, I would think that, like, I always felt like if you were going to, if you were writing about the secrets of the culture and you sold it to, like, HarperCollins, then you were a dickhead, you know. <laughs> But if you're writing about, like, um, you know, some nonfiction book about, you know, protest or your novel or whatever, that, like, why not? You know? Like, there, there's some way that it, like, seems different to me hmm. as long as you're not actually, like, exploiting the secrets of the underground that you've been entrusted with that are actually yours to sell. Hmm. If that makes any sense. What, um... You know, you, you you just you just put out issue nine. Obviously, it's it's you've been doing. How, when did you start doing scam? What what year was that roughly? Uh, nineteen ninety one. Nineteen ninety one. So, what's um? I mean, is there is there a common thread there, or is it just um? You know, whatever. That's just the outlet when when you need an outlet to to write write sort of like a pamphlet sized piece of work, then it just ends up as an issue of scam. Well. I... I don't know. I think the themes are, I don't know. That is an interesting question. I guess I've had to think about that a little bit lately, but, 
Um, so let me think about it again for a second. The, you know, the because you did, you know, you did the on the lower frequencies book, which you know wasn't really part of the continuum. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, length is a difference there. Well, I mean, I think what happened was. Um, the earlier issues were really concerned with sort of, um, you know, proselytizing for the scam lifestyle in a way, you know, um, which was about, um, which is not, it's not literally like about like how to steal or something, but it was more like philosophically about like, um, like how to pick your time back, you know, and like how to like, think about things like sort of to inspire people to think about how to become resourceful in a way that they would like maybe not have to become like living in a dead end nine to five job, but they might think of like ways to like um, live for themselves and pursue that, you know? Um, and I was just offering like some tactics and then also some inspiration and some of my own stories. And, you know, similarly squatting, in those issues was um, in some ways, you know, about like a, a philosophical search for like a free space, um, you know, like a more autonomous space where punks and freaks could kind of like actually live the way they wanted to live. And, you know, like... Um, that was the benefits of like having a legal generator show in the middle of nowhere instead of like trying to get booked in bars in Miami, you know, was that we could do whatever we wanted, you know, and that's what we wanted, you know. So it's kind of like this, that's kind of what the search was. And then a certain, and I feel like each of those kind of early issues kind of like so, so well advanced that universe that like I didn't, have any interest in repeating them, kind of, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, there's, you can only tell, like, there's only, there's only a couple stories you can really tell about hopping a freight train, mm-hmm. or hitchhiking, or stealing, or looking for a squad, or whatever, it's like those things all kind of, like, turn out the same, no matter what, you know? <clears throat> as long as you live through that, right? <laughs> What's that now? As long as you live through them. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, you, it's like, a, you know, it's, I don't know, hitchhiking story, a greyhound story, all that stuff. It's like they're all, they all kind of like have a certain trajectory to them, right? You know, I felt like once I had said them a certain way, I wasn't necessarily interested in saying them again. Um, I felt like I had kind of like taken it as far as it could go and my interest in it was kind of taxed a little bit you know um, <clears throat> and then I moved to <clears throat> when I moved to San Francisco I started doing a different scene entirely actually a neighborhood newspaper uh, called the Turkfield Donut it was more of a, an attempt to um speak outside of the punk scene, but actually just to speak to all my neighbors. And that was like, uh, that paper was about 
um, the community and about protest stuff and kind of featured a lot of Gallus kind of humor about Skid Row when I was living. And, and um, that became really pretty successful in San Francisco for a long time. And I, at that time, I was writing for, like, This American Life and some other stuff, too. And so I wasn't really thinking about scam, but then I always wanted to go back and, and I always felt like I had this kind of nationwide punk audience, too, you know, that mm-hmm. um, I would go and, like, kind of recompile that stuff for, for for that audience in scam, you know, if that makes any sense. Um so I was doing that, and then um, a lot of that stuff ended up being uh, on the lower frequencies stuff, you know, which is like heavily from that anti-war era and the anti-gentrification era, and a lot of that stuff ended up being in that book. And then since that book, for whatever reason, the um, scans have just kind of been more um, pieces of long-form journalism that I've been interested in mm-hmm. the last couple of years. Um I think the last three, the, there's an issue about um, stencil art in Argentina mm-hmm. at the time of the economic collapse there. And then there's an issue you mentioned about Miami. And then there's the recent issue about Black Flag. To me, those kind of all go together in a way that like a little bit of a, like a weird triptych about about like art and protest and um, art being recuperated by capitalism and um, the underground, that kind of thing. Was, was... So I think I might, I might be done with that series. But um, I don't know, the stealing and all that stuff is scam. It's like that stuff has never left my life, really. Like my life hasn't really changed. But um, the, uh, I just didn't feel like talking about it anymore in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> and then also I would say too that the crime tank stuff came out. And I felt like <clears throat> when they came along I felt like they kinda killed it in a way. It was like they were like um in one hand they kinda got like what I was doing. They, like in, in one aspect they did what I was doing like way better because they were able to like really put out thousands and thousands of their papers like for free completely and spread the word that way and I was like pretty bold and ambitious and kind of like said it got the message across that their what, what they were doing was like viable that they could do it for free you know and then but then on the other hand it felt like thematically they really zeroed in on like literally on like stealing you know and like from like chain stores in the suburbs or something it was kind of like very like it's really boring, you know. <laughs> I just thought it was like, and you guys like missed the whole point of what this is about. Like, it's like, it's not about like how to feel. It's about like how to live, you know. Um, so I just kind of was like, well, and then you know, retroactively, I've been linked with that stuff, even though they came out later. Like, I've, I've read reviews of Scam where people complain and like, oh, I'm fucking all tired of this cramping crap and. You, fucking entitled kids in the suburbs, like, you know, you know, using their white privilege to steal from Walmart. <laughs> I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> that's not me. I mean, it is in some ways. It's not entirely, you know. You know? So I don't know. It's just, it, it was just kind of over, you know what I mean? Was, yeah. was the, um, 
was the decision to go by your your real name was that sort of like a, a, a kind of a conscious manifestation of of that shift I don't know it just seemed like it was time you know it's, um, it seemed like uh, it seemed like Iggy scan had become sort of a cartoon character mm-hmm. in a certain way that was like expected to do like <clears throat> certain kind of like Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we finally got a chance to do this, and thanks thanks for taking the time. Okay. All right, man. Well, uh, I hope it works out. Let me know how it goes. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. Yep. Talk to you later. Bye. There you go, Eric Lyle. Uh, Iggy Scam from uh, from the kind of world-famous scam zine um, done under the name Iggy Scam uh, also reverted back to his name Eric Lyle for the uh, fantastic book on the lower frequencies which is uh, a really great collection of, uh, of his writing uh, it's about sort of uh, living on the, the edge of poverty um, scam zine however is still uh, still a going concern and, and I rarely when when speaking of artists I rarely actually recommend their most recent work as a, an entry point but uh, man there's there's really there's no there's no better way to uh to, to start with that than the, the most recent one. It's a uh, this really kind of fascinating and, and now actually incredibly timely retrospective he did on uh, on Black Flag. He did a, a, an oral history for the LA Weekly and this is um, kind of uh, expounds upon that. Uh, things that you know didn't necessarily make it uh, into the final version of that. So that's definitely definitely uh, worth checking out. So uh, thanks so much to him. Uh, thanks as always to Geneva for cutting this together. Thanks to uh, Box Brown for the logo. Thanks to you for listening. There uh, should be some more of these in the not-too-distant future. Uh, if you want to follow along, you can do so over on our Tumblr. It's riylcast.tumblr.com or shoot us an email at uh, riylcast.com 
podcast gmail.com see we made it easy to uh the, the, the same thing twice on, on, on two different platforms uh we're also on itunes so you know download us over at that place and uh leave leave a lot of stars you know leave some comments we appreciate it thanks so much